All right, we are live. And the first question today is um, Calvinism. And it's about the five points of Calvinism. Let me share with you guys what I was asked. It's somewhere, there it is, from Paul Rem on Facebook. Um, this question was actually asked a little bit ago, um, but I went back into the logs to find a question for today to start with. And he says, of the five points of Calvinism, are there any you affirm? Or what is the one point you see that is the hardest to reconcile? Um, sidebar, while I personally resisted for years, what is Reformed theology by R.C. Sproul was what ultimately pushed me over the edge. And <clears throat> side note, um, I uh, couldn't sleep well last night. <laughs> the bags under my eyes probably declare. But I actually listened because I, could, I just listened to the, to the whole thing from R.C. Sproul on uh, what is Reformed theology. I've heard a lot of it in the past, but I listened to it again. Here is my answer to your question, Paul. Um, and I, I'm surprised because, I'm you know, kind of what R.C. Sproul did is what I'm going to do here. He didn't really defend Reformed theology there. He just presented it, right? He just explained it, defined it, and, that, and moved on. Interesting that him simply explaining it is what convinced you. I find that really interesting. Now, here is the idea of TULIP. TULIP is a, for those who don't know, TULIP is a, a way to summarize Calvinistic theology, the distinctives of Calvinistic theology. And while in many ways I am reformed, in many ways, and, and I get along so great with my Calvinist brothers and sisters, we agree on so many things. You would find that most, most of the time, if I'm not talking about Calvinism, we're probably in agreement on stuff. And I think it's an in-house discussion. We shouldn't argue and all that. But but in so many ways, I'm reformed. I believe in the solas. I believe in, um, you know, especially sola scriptura, right? And I believe in grace, grace alone, sola gratia. So I believe in the solas, all five. I think they're extremely important. And it's just how they play out in our theology that makes me not a Calvinist, ultimately. That's the thing. So let me answer Paul's question by running through TULIP point by point, the T-U-L-I-N-P, and then giving you guys uh, just a quick explanation, at least of where my position is on this. Now, I'm not going to try and do a full teaching on Calvinism here today. That's not my goal. I have links in the description where I go into a lot more detail on these issues. This is just a summary. Then I'm going to your questions because this is the Friday Q&A, and I'm going to try to take up to 20 questions today. Hopefully, we'll get that far. Now, the, 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 the TULIP, the acronym TULIP, it, let me just give you what it stands for. T stands for total depravity. U stands for unconditional election. L, limited atonement. I, irresistible grace. And then P, perseverance of the saints. And this is the idea that, um, that, that grounds, sort of identifies Calvinistic theology and its distinctives. A lot of Calvinists are five-point Calvinists. They mean they hold all five of those points. Some are four-point Calvinists, in which case they probably don't hold limited atonement. That's probably the, the most commonly rejected one amongst Calvinists. But let me walk through them and tell you why. I actually would say I don't hold to, now I don't outright reject all of them, but I don't hold to any of the five points of Calvinism. And if I explain why, then maybe it'll make good sense for everybody who's listening in. The first one, and the one that everybody seems to agree on, or at least a lot of people seem to agree on, is total depravity. The T of TULIP, total depravity, is the first one that I actually reject. But the reason why I reject it is because it's not what a lot of people casually think. They think that Calvinism is teaching that people are, are really sinful and they need Jesus, in which case everyone agrees. Like, oh, well, then I affirm total depravity. You can't be saved without Jesus. You're lost in your sin. You're a rebel against the truth of God. Um, you, you need 
you need to be regenerated. You need to be born again. And Jesus is the way. And there's no salvation apart from him. Like these are all things I would affirm. But that's not total depravity. Total depravity, what makes it distinctive, what makes it Calvinistic is the idea that an unregenerate person, when the gospel is being preached, when the Holy Spirit is 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 not regenerating them, but is striving with mankind, as we read about in Genesis, where God says, my spirit will not strive with man forever. So his spirit's striving with the unsaved. When, when this is happening, the Holy Spirit's bringing conviction of sin, righteousness, judgment to come. The light of the gospel is being preached into a person's life that they will always say no. That's, the, that's what makes total depravity total depravity. Another way to interpret this is to say total inability. Another way to put it. If, if you get the gospel with the Holy Spirit working on you, you will always, always, always reject God and say no. That's total depravity. It's not just saying that man is sinful. It's saying more than that. It's not just saying that every man needs a savior. It's more than that. It's not saying that, that nobody can work their, their way to salvation. It's far more indifferent than that. Total inability is something I reject because I do think that a person can respond to the work of the Holy Spirit and to the preaching of the gospel before they are born again. And then at, when they believe, they are then born again. And this is a major distinctive with Calvinistic theology. And it basically says in Calvinist teaching that regeneration precedes faith. And this is profound. When you understand this, 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 this honestly, of all the points of Calvinism, th this reality of Calvinism is where the light bulb went on in my head. And I went, oh, I see it. There aren't even five points. There's just like one point said five different ways. Calvinist theology is just really very much about how regeneration precedes faith. So total depravity, the, the, the statement is, all will reject the gospel in every situation, no matter how much God is reaching out, no matter how much the Holy Spirit's working on them, unless that work is that he regenerates you, you become born again, you become a new person, and now you can't help but believe. And I do reject that. I reject that regeneration precedes faith. Um, now, there, there is some Arminians who hold to provenient grace, and then they do affirm total depravity. I'm confused by how they do that, to be honest, because it seems to me that I just don't, I don't affirm total depravity to, to begin with. And I have a, a video where I deal with the, the issue of divine hardening, how God hardens hearts. And I think, I think this is something that challenges Calvinism real specifically. <clears throat> the idea that God hardens a person's heart, specifically in relation to the presentation of the gospel, it doesn't work on Calvinism. Yet we see this consistently <clears throat> in the gospel of John. So in John's gospel, we have, we have God hardening people's hearts in relation to the gospel. That doesn't make sense if we're totally depraved and there is, we're already ultimately hard to the gospel of Christ to the point where we'll reject it. So I've asked Calvinists on this, like, how do you explain divine hardening in relation to the gospel? How do you explain that on Calvinism? And I've never heard a good answer. So I've linked below my video on divine hardening. I hope you guys will consider it. It's actually a full teaching on the topic of divine hardening through scripture. Like why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? That kind of thing. In it, I also address Calvinism as a side note, because once I establish the doctrine, I go, yeah, this isn't consistent with Calvinist teaching. The next one is unconditional election. So that's T, total depravity, I reject it. Unconditional election. Well, you know, I could affirm unconditional election if it meant we're saved by grace apart from works. God doesn't choose us because of any goodness in us or any good thing we do. I would totally agree, right? But I also define good thing as a work and faith is not a work. So... Faith is not a good thing you do. 
for which God returns, you know, gives you salvation. You're not earning anything with faith. The whole idea of faith is you earn nothing. God does all the work. So unconditional election <clears throat> on Calvinism is to say that for whatever reason, God simply chooses who will be saved. And this doesn't have anything to do with their faith or their believing in him. It doesn't have anything to do with other other factors that might be like, if you guys have heard of Molinism, that might be like that those kinds of factors, the difference between, and forgive me guys, you don't need to learn this, but if you know these terms, it doesn't have anything to do with uh, possible and feasible worlds. It doesn't have anything to do with that kind of thing. And it's just utterly irrelevant, all that stuff. God simply chooses some to be saved and they're going to be saved. So unconditional election is is more, it's less about saying that God chooses who will be saved, because I actually would affirm that. It's more about denying that you have a, a, an actual free will choice in the matter as well, meaning that you could choose to accept Christ or reject Christ, which is really the same as total depravity, which is the same as irresistible grace. These are all the same point. So I, I think that um, God's foreknowledge does, in a sense, depend upon our faith. I also think there's a case to be made for a corporate view of election in a lot of the scriptures that deal with it, though not all of them, I don't think. Um, but a corporate view of election is like we're being chosen in Christ. So as, in a sense, you know, here's, here's those who will trust in Christ, and God chooses us in Christ because you're in Christ, you're the elect. In other words, you trust in Jesus, you will be saved. And just so you guys know, I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is the Friday Q&A where we do 20 questions with Pastor Mike. I answer your questions from the live chat. Today, I'm starting with a bit of a longer, more involved question to intro the whole Q&A thing, and we're collecting your questions now. Once we get 20, which will be very soon here, we will stop collecting them, and I'll just, keep, I'll just answer them today. All right, let's talk about limited atonement. So we've got total depravity, unconditional election. I don't think either of those are true. If, if by unconditional, you mean... It's not at all conditioned upon things like possible feasible worlds or the free will choices of man that these aren't considered in the plan of God, then um, I, I don't believe that. If you mean it's not conditioned upon works, I fully affirm it, which is not what it means. <laughs> um, now, limited atonement is the next one. And I absolutely reject this one. Limited atonement is the idea that Jesus didn't really die to pay for the sin of the unsaved. He only really died to pay for certain people's sins. And this one gets hairy when you ask a Calvinist to explain it. It often gets very hairy and very complicated and you start getting really terminology, new terminology you have to learn and try to understand what are they saying here. But let me just say this. I'm not going to unpack it in detail. I have done this already. I have a video where I deal with how limited atonement and universalism are both wrong. I've linked that below. And then I have a video where um, after Dr. James White responded to my video and he brought all these arguments from guys like John Owen, who's like a Calvinist heavyweight if there ever was one. And I went and studied John Owen's work on this topic and I brought a response video where we go deep into the theology of why I am rejecting limited atonement. So there's are two videos down below and um, Calvinists can listen to them. You know, you won't be bashed. You guys, you, you know, for those who know me know that that's not going to happen. I... I think the atonement is limited in application and the application is based upon those who believe and trust in Christ. See, if you trust in Christ, then it's applied to you, but the payment was made for everyone. And I talk in more detail about that um, in that video, those two videos. The next one of the, the tulip is irresistible grace. And again, if you start, hopefully you're starting to click. These are all the same point. They're all the same point. They're basically the idea that free will is somehow, mankind choosing to, to trust God is somehow in conflict with the sovereignty of God or with the grace of God. So all these points are ultimately rejecting free will. Total depravity rejects the free will of man to choose to receive the gospel until after he's regenerated. Unconditional election 
um, rejects the idea that we are receiving salvation um, at all dependent upon our choices, that God's factoring in our choices. Limited atonement rejects the idea that Jesus even offered or truly offered, truly paid the price, made made provision for all people in his death. And so your your will and your decision making is, is ruled out. Irresistible grace does the same thing. So just like total depravity says when you're not saved, you you will always say no to God. Irresistible grace is the other side of the coin. And when you are born again, when you're regenerated, you will always say yes to God. So you're in one of two scenarios where ultimately you you only have one option. To, you know, unsaved, say no to God. Saved, say yes to God. And how do you get from one to the other? God just regenerates you before you even have faith. He just regenerates you. And then you can't help but have faith. And again, I reject that as well. I think that's uh, that seems to be contrary to just the obvious teaching in scripture about people making real choices and then living with those real choices where they could have made a different choice. The perseverance of the saints is the final uh, letter in Tulip, P, perseverance of the saints. And this is the one I'm, I'm, I'm not staunchly against. I'm not. I just can't totally affirm it. And part of this is because when it comes to the perseverance of the saints, the idea that um, the saved cannot under any circumstances fall away. Under any circumstances. So let me offer the one that I have the hardest time with. Even apostasy. Even somebody who says, I don't want you, God. I reject the gospel. I reject Jesus Christ. I don't want you. This is not a work issue. This is a faith issue. They've actually re they've recanted their faith in Christ. That 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 just either doesn't happen or doesn't work. Uh, in, their, in Calvinism, usually they would probably just say it doesn't happen at all. I'm actually not really sure of what my conclusion is on the topic of perseverance of the saints. And after I finish the Mark series verse by verse, I'm going to be going probably into Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. In that series... I'm going to do what I've done in the past with other topics. At some point in Hebrews, maybe when we hit chapter 6 or 4 or 10, I'm going to stop and I'm going to just do a um, long, thoughtful, careful study on the topic of can you lose your salvation. And then I'm going to bring a long, exhaustive video on the topic. So that'll come out. I don't know when that'll be. That might be a year out. It'll happen when it when I get to it. So that's the topic of perseverance. Now, why do I ultimately reject all these points? Why is it? Am I just being antagonistic to Calvinism? It's no. I just see that they're all one point. They're all the same point. That free will, mankind making a free choice to accept or reject the gospel, that 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 is somehow in conflict with God's sovereignty, or in conflict with God's grace. And and to me, right, total depravity denies free will to choose to accept the gospel as an unsaved person. Then we have unconditional election. It denies that God would consider human free will choices when choosing who is elect. Limited atonement. It denies that Jesus' Jesus's death was ever truly for all people, implying they all have a free choice to accept or reject it, right? They're all just denying the same thing. Um, then irresistible grace. It denies that the sinner can say yes. Or excuse me, deny, that's, that's total depravity. It denies the sinner can say yes. Irresistible grace denies the saved can say no. And there is no decision making in between. It's like you just, yeah, you get you get the point. Really, it's just that's about regeneration preceding faith. And then perseverance of the saints denies the ability to choose to reject Christ after being saved. And um, and that, like I said, I'm not sure resolved on that issue. But I won't affirm it for the reason the Calvinist does. Yeah. And why? Because I think, and this is why I did a video a long time ago that 
brought a lot of attention from Calvinists where I just shared, look, this is what I think is one of the key issues in the debate between Calvinists who are my brothers and sisters in Christ, who I love, who I don't demonize, nor do I demonize Calvinist theology like a lot of people do. I, I just think that they're wrong. And one misstep that's made in relation to free will is how free will is often treated as a work in Calvinism. And I have a video linked below where I deal with that as well. All right, I'm, I'm going to go to your guys' questions now. So I do have some questions already loaded, and I will take them all. I think we probably have all 20 questions at this point. So yeah, we're not going to be able to keep receiving questions, and I'll just continue talking as though, as though you can hear me. Only in Antarctica says, Jesus cast out many demon-possessed people on earth with the explosion of the human population and religions. One would think this phenomenon would be more prevalent today, but it's not. Any insight? Um... Only in Antarctica, I think that one of the differences that goes on between the ancient time right, and our present time and between, say, third world countries where we see a, we, they say we see a lot more demon possession, and I think we do. Um, well, maybe we do. I'll talk about that in a second. Um, and now, so Jesus' day and now, one of the big differences is the belief in demons, right? Now, if they're believing that things are a result of demonic possession. But our default in a westernized culture is to say, no, this isn't about demon possession. This is this is just a purely a psychological problem this person's having. Then we're going to experience seeing a lot of things that are the result of demonic oppression or possession, and we're going to call it a merely a, a medical ailment. And that doesn't mean everything that's medical ailment is demonic possession, but I think we've definitely gone overboard in overreacting to, you know, um, those who are uh, too quick to call things demonic. Okay, we still have people who are doing this today, of course. But so, I, in my opinion, there's probably more demonic stuff going on in the first world countries than first world countries are admitting. And people are more in, you know, being controlled ultimately by the power of Satan in their lives than they're giving credit for. And that may be just part of the plan of Satan. Right? You, you don't have people rebelling against you as much if they don't know you're controlling them. And in third world countries, there may just be more of an awareness of these things, but it also may have to do with the particular things that are going on. See, in American or first world countries, we often have not paganism, although that's on the rise. We don't have paganism in the worship of idols and personally, purposely exposing ourselves to demonic things as much as in the third world, where if it's not Christianity, it's some other more demonically inspired religion. So you're you're directly encountering demons and demonic things more often in those third world countries because of the religions that are prevalent in them. So that's another reason why you might see more going on in those types of worlds. All right, Skeptic Reviews has a question. What's your response to the idea that Isaiah was written by multiple authors? Um, well, I mean, my initial response is I'm very opposed to it <laughs> because partially because I've just always thought Isaiah was written by one author. That's not probably a good enough reason to just reject it outright. Um, but I will say this, one argument against it goes like this. And I know people have responses to it, but I still think it's a pretty strong argument. And it would be that Jesus quotes from, okay, and for those who don't know, right, there are some scholars who are saying, you know, Isaiah through chapter 39, I think it is, is written by one author, we call that, and they call that first Isaiah. And then second Isaiah is written by a different author, and it wasn't Isaiah, and it was written much later. That would be that would be the statement there. Now, as far as how this affects our understanding of, of prophecy as relates to Christ, it doesn't actually affect it because wherever you put second Isaiah, it's still long before the time of Jesus. Okay, that's that's pretty significant. So it's still all the Isaiah 53 stuff, 52, this important prophetic stuff comes long before the time of Christ. But here's one argument I'll offer against it. 
is that Jesus quotes from both parts of Isaiah, from the early and latter part of Isaiah, and Jesus still calls it Isaiah. He, and he doesn't just say from the book of Isaiah, but he says like Isaiah said. The implication is that he understood it to have one author and that he was carrying forward that idea. And I think that that's kind of important for us to consider. Um, I have looked into some of the other specifics on this, but I can't remember them off the top of my head, so I won't try to dig in. Uh, Haruhi Anderson says, do you believe in God as a matchmaker for Christian couples? Oh, this is a great question. Uh, the doctrine of waiting on the one whom God has chosen as your spouse. Some pastors say this is a waste of time or unrealistic. Um, okay, I will, there's two extremes and I don't agree with either one. One extreme is that God has one person for everyone out there and you just have to find the one person, the one. And if you find that one, then it, now this is where it gets bad. If you find that one, you will have a good marriage. And that is just, this is very unhealthy, very unhealthy. That second part that if you find the one, it'll be a good marriage. That's very unhealthy. A lot of Christians walk into marriage thinking I did things right. Therefore I should have a good relationship with my spouse, a fulfilling marriage and a very happily ever after. And I think this is very unwise and it, all it really does is it sets people up to grow very bitter towards their spouse and even bitter towards God because they had all these high expectations of fulfillment because they were, they were such, and think about this. I did so good that God was going to reward me with good experiences in this life. I mean, this is a prosperity gospel applied to marriage. I think that's unwise. And I don't think that God has picked a one for every person. I think that that's un, that's not just not taught in scripture. You may have a personal conviction that that's true, but at least recognize this. Your personal conviction is not based on the clear teachings of scripture. You may go and say, well, God chose Rebecca for Isaac. Right. He did. And he chose Eve for Adam. Right. Absolutely. There was, only, there was, Eve was the one for sure. <laughs> no one can doubt that. But where's the teaching that God will do this for everyone? Right. It, God told Abraham where to live, but does that mean he'll tell all of us where to live? No. And if you think God chose, you know, Rebecca for Isaac, well, does that mean that you have to actually, you, you don't even, you don't even date, you, you actually hire a matchmaker like Eliezer to go to a foreign land to find your wife. Do you follow that pattern? You're just arbitrarily picking things out of the text that, that aren't clear. Proverbs says he who finds a wife finds a good thing. I say, don't find the one, find a good one. There's lots of good ones. There's lots of good ones and your chances are going to be better if you pick a good one. <laughs> I picked a good one. I don't think my wife was the one I had to marry and I had no choice for someone else. But I, I think she was a good choice. <clears throat> That's what I think. Now, the minute we get married, she's the one. The second we get married, guess what? Now she's the one. You thought if she's the one, then our marriage would work. That was wrong. Instead, what you should think is I married her. Now she's the one. There's no one else. I'm stuck. We're going to be happy together or we're going to be miserable together. I may as well make it work. And so that that's that extreme. The other extreme is to think that God never has a one for you. There isn't ever a one. But yet we have examples like Isaac and Rebecca where God seems to be selecting this. And this is part of the genealogy of Jesus. And it seems like there is a one for some people. Okay, that's how I would interpret that Isaac passage. In some cases, there is just one person that God really wants you to, in, to be with. But that doesn't mean that you'll have a perfect marriage thereafter. So that does happen sometimes, but it doesn't mean that you're going to get a perfect marriage thereafter. And it doesn't even mean that they're the only one. 
it might be a plan A, but God knows that you're going to reject that and you end up doing something else. And so he factors in, I mean, I'm, we're all probably on plan F 47 in, in our lives right now as we walk with God. We're probably not on the best and most ideal path for our lives. And we often want to idealize all our choices in the past. But the reality is God's just able to use it all for good. It doesn't mean that every choice I made was ideal. And the same may come with marriage. You, you might have a one that God has for you. You might not. We're not commanded to wait on the one. And God has to show us that they're the one. Um, I used to feel the same way. And on a very more personal level, I, when I was going through this, I really felt like the Lord told me that my, my, my wife was my future wife, Allison, wasn't the one. She was a one. She was a good choice because she was a believer. She loved the Lord. She had a good relationship and respected me. I think that's very important, that respect thing. And we had that relationship. She loved ministry. She was interested in ministry. I didn't want to be hindered by being married to somebody who would fight against me serving the Lord. And so it was a good choice. She was a good choice. So I picked her. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Ash Cash says, is it biblically okay for a Trinitarian Christian to marry a oneness Christian? Um, I think that it's, no, you probably, sh I'm just going to give my quick answer here, Ash Cash. You probably shouldn't, um, because of the theological baggage that comes with oneness that is you're, that's going to make a compromise with your loyalty to God. I always think about the kids, okay? When you have, you think, oh, we have theological disagreements, but we're okay. We're just going to, we're just going to disagree and be okay with it. Yeah, that all sounds fine until you have kids. And all of a sudden it's like, no, we're going to take them to my church. No, we're going to teach them what I think and not what you think. And then it, then you realize there's going to be a tug of war on this topic. It, you're just asking me about wisdom here. I don't think that that seems like wisdom. I think God can use that marriage and God can be glorified in it, of course, but I'm not going to suggest it. Nick Quint says, or Quint, uh, Nick, you know, I know Nick. I just can't remember how your last name is pronounced. Quint? Quint? In constructing a biblical theology, where do we start? How do we construct a biblical method for doing theology? Um, <clears throat> that That's a huge question, Nick, and you probably have a, some real specific things in your mind, so I'm, I might, my answer might not be on target here, but here's my thought. That... When we use the word biblical, what we mean is according to the Bible or consistent with the Bible. So it all has to start with studying passages in context to try to understand their original meaning. But not only that, sometimes, it's going to sound weird, but sometimes the focus on original meaning becomes a damaging way, a damaging thing, by ignoring the unity of the Bible as though Mark has his own theology Paul has his own theology, and we and we and you know um, Moses and and the and the law has its own theology, and that these things aren't part of a continued, ultimate, cohesive revelation of God. So I would say study passages in context, but in context will include the doctrine of inspiration, and that we see God's revealing things throughout all the Scripture. Which means that I can take passages like. Paul teaching on justification, and I will understand that that gives me a better understanding of justification for interpreting uh, things like uh, the preaching of Jesus and knowing the difference in the Jews and the Gentiles is, is important for like the whole Bible, actually. So I say we start with learning how to read things in context, which is just basic English skills, interpreting stuff in, you know, in its actual context, as the, not just as the original audience would understand it, that's part of it part of it. But I really think inspiration takes us beyond that 
not in contradiction with that exactly, but beyond that, knowing that there was in the mind of God an agenda behind the text. When Isaiah wrote Isaiah 52 and 53, he didn't understand it as well as we do now. And that's part of the doctrine of inspiration. Why? Because in the mind of God, who was inspiring the writing, it meant more than it did in the mind of Isaiah or even his original audience. So inspiration should affect our biblical theology. Um, Saul has a question. Hi, Mike. And any advice for a Christian who lives with parents that are always swearing, drinking, and watching vulgar things? When I give them my opinion, they think I'm being judgmental. Am I? Um, well, in a sense, you're being judgmental, but not necessarily bad judgment. I mean, you're, you're discerning right and wrong of the things going on around you. Well, let me say this, Soul. Um, first, your obedience to Christ doesn't mean their obedience to Christ. And I'm not saying you should just be okay. It doesn't matter if they're living with major compromises in their lives. But your obedience isn't theirs. It, it's entirely possible for your you to walk in holiness where they're watching a show and you're like, this is inappropriate. And you just quietly get up and step out. They already know how you feel about it. You've already told them about it. You don't have to tell them every single time and create that that tension that's there where every single time you mention it. And there's a balance here. May God give you wisdom. But my advice is you don't sin and that's your top priority, which includes bitterness towards your parents, uh, rudeness towards them, being uh, disrespectful towards them. These are the things you will not do even in response to their sin. And beyond that, there will be some discomfort. Because in my experience, for people who were young enough that they're living at home, when they get saved, their parents initially love it. Man, he's just, she's just a better person now, like more joyful, um, more responsible, more just good, just a better person. I, I love this. But then, uh, you know, a month, two months, six months goes by, and now they're like, yeah, but now, now he or she's not approving of the things I'm doing. This is bothering me. And so I often find doing youth ministry that a kid would get saved, his parents would love it at first, and a few months down the road, the parent would be fighting against their Christian teachings because the kid's like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to watch that. I'm not going to play that game. Oh, I'm not going to laugh at that joke. And it was just irritating to the parents because they're not following Christ. So that irritation may remain. Just make sure it's not coupled with any sin on your part. Yeah. Dan Dan says, hi, Mike. My country, Armenia a Christian nation since 301 AD is defending their lives from genocide by Turkey and Azerbaijan. What are actions I can take as a Christian? That is, can I go to war if it is to defend? Dan Dan, my philosophy, theology on war is pretty simple. There is such a thing as a just war. There is such a thing as rightful defense that does involve violence towards others. That's such a thing. That, that's a real thing. And I don't know how anyone can affirm the Bible and deny that. There are pacifists, and I think pacifism is, when you draw it out to its full conclusion, when you're pacifist in every scenario, I think it's actually evil. I think if a cop stands by and watches you being beaten down and killed, and they realize, well, I, I yelled at the guy to stop, but only violence will stop his violence. And the, and the cop says, well, I'm a pacifist. I think he's being evil and abdicate, abdicating his duty to protect his fellow man. There are times. Now, what? when is when is the right time of a just war? It, it, I mean, that's a huge topic. But basically, right, when it's legitimately justified self-defense, that would be a just war. The problem with war is that sometimes it's it's both sides are wrong. Sometimes you don't have a right side. And I think it gets you get into situations that are very difficult to analyze and figure out 
am I supposed to fight or not? And, and I think that's extremely difficult. And I, I can't just walk someone through that in the Q&A here. Uh, but in principle, yes, just war is a real thing. Um, and we see this in the text of scripture. We actually see battles where there's clearly a good and clearly a bad, and God is clearly on someone's side. But we also see in scripture, read the book of Judges, a number of battles where God's on nobody's side. They're all just a bunch of knuckleheads just sinning against each other. And so it's not like every war has a right side. There are some where it's just everyone's wrong. Brent Smith says, hi, Mike, uh, what separates us from an angel? They had or have free will too, right? Is it possible for them to fall from grace or heaven if they choose? Thanks. Brent, it, my, my understanding of this is that they do have free will and they have the, they had the ability to choose to rebel against God or to choose to be loyal to God. And what makes us different than angels, I think, is that we're in the image of God and they are not in that sense. Um, we are then indwelt by the Holy Spirit. I think that the in side note, I think the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is something that's connected to being in the image of God, that the way we've been created, we can connect with God on a, in a way that they cannot. And also, we're born fallen. We're born with these sinful proclivities, whereas angels would have been initially created holy and then chosen to fall. Now, Adam, in a sense, was made that way, but not the rest of us. We're all, we're all just born this way. So there's a couple of the differences. And... Um, I'm inclined to think that while angels have a time when they can fall, they could choose to reject and fall, that there is also a time when that seems that decision, that choice seems to have been made, right? So they're presented with the choice to accept or reject. They accept, they're going to stay that way. They're going to continue to accept because they've made the choice. And, and a way to put it is this way. A person who chooses to steal when they're young is more likely to steal when they're older. A person who never steals as a kid is very unlikely to steal in the future because we're, um, yeah, we're, we're getting locked into our decisions because we sort of become the thing we choose. So I think that there's a, a sense in which they're probably not going to be choosing anything like that in the future. Enigma Deplete says, Hi, Mike. Have you heard of the Bereshit prophecy in Genesis 1-1 regarding end times? It is something I've run into a lot recently. I wanted to know if you have any thoughts on it. So Enigma, um, Bereshit is just a word that means uh, beginning. In the beginning, right? So we see in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's a Bereshit. That's what that word is, if memory serves. If someone calls that a prophecy, in Genesis 1-1, they're probably making stuff up. I'm just going to say, I, I haven't looked into this. I haven't heard their case, but I'm like 95% sure they're just making stuff up and using Hebrew to trick people into thinking that they found something. This is the kind of thing we see online. Man, 2020 is like the year for false prophets and made up stuff. Um, so that's my honest answer. Enigma, I haven't looked into it in detail. Maybe it's a lot more respectable than that, but probably not. <laughs> just I've had some experience in these things. Grace Lou 22 says, my JW friend says the Greek for soul just refers to any living person or any living being, person or animal, and that the immortal soul is taken from the Greeks and was not a Jewish belief. How would you respond? Uh, this is like a historical argument about the definition, not just the definition of the word soul, but the concept of a soul. And the those who preach um, annihilationism or conditional immortality they, I've heard at least some of them say that those who, who die, they just, they just, you just stop existing. This is just what happens. Okay. And the idea that you live on after death 
was a later idea that was imported from Greek teaching, Greek philosophies, and then brought into the Christian church, but it's not in the text of scripture that you automatically live on after death. I'm probably sharing this clumsily, but uh, but that's the basic idea. What's my response to that is it, it just doesn't seem to be the case when I read things like um, Samuel coming back from rest and he's disembodied and he's interacting with Saul and with this this, this witch in, in, the, in the whole passage of the Witch of Endor, which sounds like a Star Wars movie, right? At any rate, like that doesn't seem consistent. Um, there's, there's other passages also that don't seem consistent. I think there's a lot more afterlife hope than a lot of people admit in the Old Testament. And that seems to push against this idea, but maybe I'll, I'll study into this topic more in more detail in the future. Don Korotko has a question. Do you plan to do more verse-by-verse studies other than the books of, oh, on other books of the Bible? Mark is great. Thank you, Don. I'm really glad that you're liking the Gospel of Mark. So I think what's next is the book of Hebrews. And I've also done Romans and I've done First Peter. That's all on my YouTube channel and available, I think, on the podcast. I hope it should be. We want it to be. The um, the next thing's Hebrews. After that, I'm, and I say after that, this is like forever after. That's going to be like two years from now. But maybe after that, I'll go to an Old Testament book. I just feel like we need more teaching on the Old Testament available out there. Uh, Woolpack says, is it a sin for Christian for a Christian not to vote in elections? Will not voting negatively affect one's relationship with God. Thoughts or advice? Thank you very much, Mike. I actually was thinking about this earlier this week. Here's my thought. Here's my theory. I'm going to put this to you guys as a theory, okay? Um, Rulers have responsibilities in in God's eyes. If they abdicate their responsibility and they're they're like leaders, like presidents, kings, governors, bosses, parents, like anybody who's an authority over others, they have responsibility. And if they don't do the job, they're abdicating that responsibility and they're guilty of moral failing I think that in democratic countries where you have a vote I think that you are a ruler too you're a tiny little microscopic ruler and if you don't vote I think you're abdicating your responsibility that God has given you to influence the the people around you and the government and try to push them towards godly righteous things to legislate morality and you can't legislate morality. That's the most self-unaware statement I've ever heard. That literally all, all legislation is, is almost all of it, is legislating morality. In fact, the idea that you can't legislate morality is a moral claim about what you can legislate. <laughs> it's immoral to legislate morality, which you can't do because it's immoral, which is self-refuting. Anyway, so I do think we have a responsibility to vote because we have a rulership role in a democratic nation. And so, yeah, I think we have, I think it's a moral issue. You, you need to vote and you need to vote godly. Um, yeah, so Folky says, is, is it better not to give if you can do it, oh, if you can't do it cheerfully or lovingly? Or would it be better to give even if reluctantly in order to pick up your cross and try to imitate Jesus? I don't mean just money. Yeah, I think um, the Lord loves a cheerful giver. And we're told not not to give grudgingly, nor to give by force. So no one can force you to give. And this is in 1 Corinthians. Nor are we supposed to give grudgingly, meaning that it's like, oh, I really don't want to give. And Now, you could interpret that to be, so if I'm grudging, I shouldn't give. But giving isn't the thing you're supposed to stop. It's the grudgingly part you're supposed to stop. So the right application is to give generously. 
and to give cheerfully. But what if my emotions aren't there? What if I just not, I'm not feeling this giving thing? I think that that's where there's a balance between, okay, I'm just going to die to myself. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to, with the act of will, I'm going to choose to give and I'm, gonna, I'm choosing to do so in as cheerful a manner as I can. If this giving is good, this giving is appropriate, maybe it's serving in a ministry. But if you don't, if you say, well, if I'm grudging, then I should stop. Then I think that tens of thousands of pastors have to quit tomorrow because they're struggling and serving the Lord, because it's hard for them to get up and go on tr to church on Sunday and preach another study because they're having a difficult time going to do counseling and they find that they just don't feel like it. And the answer is never to follow your flesh. It's always to follow the Spirit. So it's a, sort of like a will decision. I'm going to give and I'm going to fight the grudge that is inside my heart about giving or serving or whatever. And I'm just going to do the right thing and do my best to do it with the right attitude. So yeah, that would be my counsel on that. Don't let my bad attitude keep me from doing good things. That's a good principle. Austin Hallman says, what is the purpose of a church service? Should it primarily be for believers or should it be intentionally inclusive of those in attendance who are not saved? I don't know if we have a hard and fast rule on this. Um, I will say this, that the purpose of the church, the body of Christ, is both evangelism and discipleship. Both. It seems appropriate that the church has some measure of both of those things going on. But re in reality, if your church is, the, ma the majority of your church is believers, then you probably need to focus on discipleship, not evangelism, on your Sunday service. If you have the majority of the people showing up on Sunday are non-believers, then you probably want to focus on evangelism, not as much on discipleship. Because you're just trying to meet the needs of the people. You see the people, you see their needs, and you try to meet them. So I think that there's some flexibility we can have here. Most churches, the emphasis should probably be discipleship, right? Doesn't mean that's all you do. You can still do evangelism. You could even have services that are focused on evangelism. You should always be aware that people are, you know, what I want to do is teach on a regular basis on Sundays, although I'm not teaching Sunday mornings anywhere anymore. <laughs> but uh, I want to teach in a on a regular basis on a Sunday morning service if I know that's the one where people are bringing their unsafe family and friends, where they because of my regular weekly habits as I preach and teach, where they think I would want my unsaved coworker to come. I would want my unsaved family member to be here because he's not only discipling me, but he's, he's trying to keep an olive branch out to them. So it's, it's at least, you know, the gospel's like salt that flavors everything else I do. That to me seems like a smart way to do it. Um, and it, what it does is it creates... In, because as a pastor, no matter how many times you tell people, bring your unsaved family and friends, it doesn't matter, okay? It just doesn't matter very much. What matters is that your congregants listen to your teaching week to week and they think to themselves, I would want my unsaved family or friend to hear that message. I'm going to bring them. You inspire people to bring people for evangelism by the way you teach on Sunday morning. Um, which means being mindful of those listeners. So yeah, there's some balance there. I hope that some of those thoughts were helpful for you, Austin. Um, Nat Attias, this is question number 16, says, Hello, Pastor Mike. How do you respond to people who use the verses like 1 John 3, 6 to say that as they mature in the faith, Christians come to a point where they have completely stopped sinning? All right, let's go to the text. 1 John 3, 6. Um. It says, no one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has ever seen him or known him. 
Okay, so first let's say this. This verse, I'm gonna highlight it because there's just a block of text on your screen. But this verse can't be used. Like I, I like legitimately think it can't be used for the way that people are using it that you're talking about. They're using it like this. You get saved and then you slowly progress to a point of sinlessness. But that's not what the verse says. It says if you're sinning, if you interpret keeps on sinning as you're going to be sinless, right? Any sin, keep, keeping on continuing any sin in your life as a Christian. If you interpret it to mean that you have to be sinless to qualify here, then you have to say that it happens at the moment of salvation. It's not a process. From day one, as soon as you've seen him or known him, now you are sinless. Okay, so this is not a progression. This is not sanctification. And some people reach a point of sinlessness and others have not. This, this can't be used for that. Now, why wouldn't I use it to say that everyone who gets saved is always sinless therein, you know, from then on, from then on out? Um, well, first off, we have lots of other scriptures that would refute that very clearly. We have plenty of Christians who sin. I mean, read the letter in Revelation, the letters that Jesus writes to the churches. He's constantly accusing them of sin issues. We have um, Galatians 6 that tells us, like, if any of you falls into a trespass, if any of you is caught up in sin, let, like, you Christians, let you restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. So believers who deal with sins is an expected taught thing, even in 1 John. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, it says, if any of us sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But if you interpret this to mean saved equals sinless, then 1 John 2, 1 makes no sense because he would have to say, none of us sin, period. So what does it mean? Well, in the in the Greek, this is a, and they do this in the English and the ESV to try to give it to you. He keeps on sinning. The idea here is that in 1 John, right, there's those who are in darkness living in a life of rebellion against God. And then when you're saved, you're not doing that anymore. It doesn't mean you're sinless. It just doesn't mean you, you just don't keep on going in that same path of godless life. But if you do, if you keep on, if you're living that same life, the ungodly, unsaved lifestyle, it's because you don't know him. And that's a strong emphasis in 1 John. But here, keeps on sinning means, I think, continues in the unsaved lifestyle they had before they proclaimed themselves as Christians. If you say a prayer and your life doesn't change, then it may be that it wasn't genuine salvation to begin with. That would be my interpretation of that. Um, Proverbs 17.11 has a question. Mike, I've been told by Christians that their relationship with God is personal and that they don't wish to discuss anything in regard to religion. Is this biblical? Um, no, <laughs> no, no, not at all. It's utterly unbiblical and it's terribly embarrassing. Imagine, if you will, that I said, my relationship with my family is personal. So I never want to talk about my wife or kids or I don't have kids, but if, but I never want to talk about my family. I never want to talk about anything that goes on with my family because it's personal. Or if I said, my, my love for football is deeply personal and therefore I never want to talk about football. Or if I said, I, man, I'm really, Minecraft is so great and I love it so much. And my experience with Minecraft is deeply personal, which is why I never, ever want to talk about Minecraft. Please don't talk to me about Minecraft. I find it very offensive. This is some kind of weird spiritual deception that's going on. If you love God, you want to talk about him. You want to think about him. You want to enjoy others who like talking and thinking about him. You want to delight in him. It's like fans of football get together and what do they start talking about? Quarterbacks and football and fantasy football and they're just delighting in it because they love it. If you hate talking about God and Jesus, 
it's because you probably don't love God and Jesus. This is this is like a no-brainer to me. Or or it's because you've bought some some sort of horrible lie that it's immoral to talk about the most important thing in the universe. It's immoral to discuss the person who saved you from your sin, who loves you and died for you. The one who was nakedly put to open shame in order to save you. But you wouldn't want to experience the discomfort of discussing him in public. So embarrassing. So embarrassing. Then there's a million scriptures. Jesus says, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. He didn't say go into all the world, but don't say anything because this stuff is deeply personal. This is just one of the craziest things I've ever heard. And it kills evangelism and it kills fellowship because you don't fellowship with Christians if you don't actually talk to them about the Lord. Um, Anyway, number 18, Eighth Day Adventist says, Hey Mike, uh, God bless you and thank you and all that you do. My question is, is uh, what's your favorite Bible verse? A verse that you would look at daily that gives you courage or strengthens you or multiple. Let me just give you one. I don't have a favorite verse, but one of my favorite verses. And I don't at all cringe at, at sharing something that others talk about all the time as well. Is trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. I know that it continues. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. But the part that just I meditate on is trust in the Lord with all your heart not on your own understanding. I think this is foundational for so much of every every day of your life. Um, another one is Psalm 62 verse 8. Um, Trust in the Lord at all times, O you people. Pour out your hearts to him. God is a refuge for us. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. This is this is the verse that's on, that was on the sign back when I was teaching in the church when we were allowed to be inside. And, um, and the sign behind me had that verse on it. Hugely encouraging verse. And I think that the most important verses are the ones that get our hearts at least for daily verses to be reminding ourselves of are the ones that get our hearts in the right place to live our lives in the right way for God. And to me, faith, trusting in not just believing Christian truths, but trusting in God. I mean, I trust him. It's pers- This is deeply personal, which is why I love talking about it. I trust him. I don't just believe that Christianity is true. I believe in God. I believe in Christ. I trust. And because of that, I can, I can walk in his ways and I can, all of the uncertainties and stresses and worries of life are impacted by that. Um, Nathan P says, where is God's help when fighting a porn addiction? (coughs) Why does it seem that crying out in prayer yields little help? And even when resisting the temptation, I'm left exhausted. I'll offer two thoughts on this, Nathan. One, (coughs) pardon me. One thought is this, you are probably um, not acknowledging all the help that God's already given you. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, no temptation has overtaken you except that, um, here it is, except that it is, (laughs) I have it memorized in the New King James, I'll just read to you in my head because it's going to mess me up. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man, but God is faithful He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. This applies to pornography. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation, he'll provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it or endure it. God is already helping you according to scripture. If you feel powerless, it's because you just keep making the same choices. And that's my second point. The thing I find that in my own fight against lust, against sin but but in particular as a as a as a human being 
dealing with lust is I find this, that we try to fight lust long after we have already started the fire burning quite brightly in our hearts. And because of this, we find ourselves powerless to put it out. So, you know, when I, when I was a kid, we, we went up and visited family up in Las Vegas and we'd spend time up there and it's in the desert, it's super hot. Me and another knucklehead, when I was like, I must have been, well, I probably was like 12. Anyway, uh, we, we went up and uh, we started starting fires, I'm not kidding, in this like sort of flat open area, right in the city, but it was just this unimproved lot with a bunch of just brambles and weeds and stuff like that. And we found a lighter in the ground, so we started breaking off dried pieces of, of tinder and we started starting these little fires. And then we would put it out, and then we start another fire, put it out, start a fire, put it out. At one point, we decided to make the fire a little bigger, and all of a sudden, the fire was just too big. And we're standing there, and I look around, and I see there's houses here. This, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. I'm starting a fire in the desert. What was I thinking? I, now I realize what a fool I am. And this fire is getting big. I mean, the, the flames are, like, coming up to my head. And we're looking around, and we're, we're like, what are we going to do? We're, we're not able to stop the fire. We notice a pair of jeans sitting like 20 feet away and one of us I don't remember who grabs the jeans and we start batting the fire because we just couldn't stomp on it with our feet we started batting the fire with the jeans and fought it and put the fire out barely I mean if we had waited 10 more seconds I think it would have been a, a massive like loss of homes because kids are stupid right like sorry kids you just don't know how dumb you are. <laughs> Neither did I. I wonder how dumb I am now that I don't, and I don't know it. Um, at any rate, that's what I think temptation is like. I think that guys, they or girls, they start by looking at like just an image that's just attractive to them, and then maybe I'm going to go examine somebody's Facebook profile because I see images. Or I'm going to go on Instagram or TikTok or one of those other cesspools, and I'm going to I'm going to go on here, and I'm just I'm just looking at things that are find I find exciting or titillating a little bit in my heart but it's not like full-blown lust right like it's just you know it, it's it's starting a fire now that fire would have been easy to put out when your temptation was just to go on instagram it would have been easy to put out when the temptation was just to, to watch a show or a movie that probably you shouldn't that would have been easy to fight there but by waiting hours or, or minutes even until that fire has grown, then you're trying to fight it. And now you're like, oh, where's the help? Where's the help? And it's like the Lord was there helping you when you first decided to yield to the little inclinations towards lustful sin. And that's where God was helping you. And that's where you lost the battle. And now you're dealing with the results. And you feel like he's not helping you. But you forgot that you didn't even start fighting until the battle was half over. And that's why you're being overwhelmed. I speak this as a, as a human to other humans. You have to fight sin at its root. You have to make no provision for the flesh. You have to say no at the very first inkling of temptation or then it can become overwhelming. And I think that, that I think that's huge. Um, trust in God's provision. Trust that God is holding it back from you and just realize maybe you need to fight it a lot sooner. Last question for today. Ashley Koenig says, should Christians follow Old Testament dietary laws? Many people point to Acts, but I'm stuck on the prophecy in Isaiah 66, verses 16 and 17, where eating pork is still, uh, still seems to be detestable to God, even in end times. Well, <clears throat> um, let's, let me set aside Isaiah for two seconds, and we'll come back to that in a minute. In the New Testament, it's abundantly clear. I mean, abundantly clear. And I, I will please point you to this and 
if anybody hears me in the live chat right now while we're live, please post my Hebrew Roots playlist in the live chat if one of my mods can do that. And I will also put it in the video description after, which I'll be logging off real soon here. So that's a great thing to follow up on, please, because I go into tons of detail on this stuff, tons in like four videos. I mean, tons. We do a whole video, like an hour and 20 minutes on the book of Acts, where we just survey it, Jewish Gentile issues. Another video is just on like all of the stuff we get, um, uh, I think from from Paul, like on Colossians and all these passages that people who are, who say we have to obey the dietary laws are generally ignoring or misinterpreting in my opinion. So I deal with all that in that video. So that's clear. That's just just clear, right? It's it's clear in the New Testament. We are not under the, the law of the Old Testament, which includes not having dietary restrictions. Now, if you voluntarily want to not eat pork, go ahead. You're totally able to do that. If your conscience is like, I just feel wrong eating pork or eating this or eating that, go ahead. That's totally okay. You can be vegetarian if you want. You can be vegan if you want. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just not required, right? That's just your conscience issue. That's what Romans 14 is all about. What about Isaiah, though? Why does Isaiah seem to speak prophetically about a time far in the future when the people are obs they're, they're observing um, dietary laws? Uh, well, let's just say this. I, I don't know for sure how I interpret that as, as well as Ezekiel. Ezekiel, which talks about um, sacrifices taking place in the temple, in the future temple that's coming, and being approved and positive, a positive thing. Um, this may just be, a re like, let's say, most extreme answer would be a there's a reinstatement of the law for some purposes right maybe in 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 israel where the nation of israel is during the millennium there's a um a place where there is no pork there is there are sacrifices there are all that stuff and maybe it's not being applied to everywhere else in the world that's a hypothetical possibility there's also a possibility that god just for some reason reinstates those things for some picture some teaching lesson that he wants to, us to experience as as a way of bringing jew and gentile together maybe that's the case or maybe there's some other interpretation that it's symbolic in some respect. All that is is irrelevant to the clear teaching of the New Testament that right now we are not under the law and we are not required to observe the dietary principles. So by saying, I think my interpretation of future prophecy is that there is a future time when these dietary laws are put back on people, if that's true, which I'm not sure that it is, if that's true, it still doesn't apply to what's happening now. Right, because we have clear teaching about today. So that would be like saying there's a future time when you have to flee Jerusalem because of the judgment that's coming. Okay, but do I apply that today? Should everyone just flee Jerusalem every day, all day long? Well, no, this is a prophetic future reality. It's not an instruction for us right now. I hope that that helps. At any rate, I will see you guys hopefully Monday at 1 p.m. Pacific time where I'm going to be doing the Mark series, continuing that verse-by-verse -verse study. Next week, I have another video I'm hoping to get out on the um, Mirror Bible translation. That should be next week, which is the worst translation I've ever seen in my life. And then Friday, Pacific time, 1 p.m., we're going to be having another Q&A, hopefully without all the glitches. That's it. Lord bless you and keep you, make his face to shine upon you, lift up his countenance upon you, and give you peace.